Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Gabriel Satin and I'm an editorial contributor at Resident Advisor. Now, when the story of dance culture in the 2010s comes to be told, few will match Maria Stamper, best known worldwide as the Black Madonna for impact. Through messages of inclusivity and positivity, plus holding bastards in the industry accountable when necessary to change the game. Punching through a glass ceiling many consider to be cast in concrete and hoisting a new generation of artists up with her. And before a headline set at AVA Festival in Belfast, I sat down with her to discuss her ongoing work in equalising music, which has taken on a fresh urgency as of late. She's been helping refugees directly and generally preaching the value of activism to her audience, all while holding down a gruelling tour, recording and radio schedule. So you'll be hearing from two chronically online people the importance of logging off now and again to enact real change. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. And the exchange with the Black Madonna is up next. is the keynote of today's AVA conference. It is another live resident advisor exchange. My name is Gabriel Satin and I'd like you all to give a warm welcome to today's keynote speaker, the Black Madonna. I am really glad we got a do-over of that introduction. I've been waiting for three years to do it properly. Oh yeah, we had a very bad interview once. Uh, we've had a few things down the road. Let's yeah. hope today is a little bit better. Than yeah, I think so. We're about five or six years into your international career. You've been a resident and a talent buyer at Smart Bar, an emergent star at Panorama Bar. You then were too busy for Smart Bar. You've headlined every festival and club in the world, radio and residency, two records with Robin. It, what might be easiest is to ask what stayed the same rather than what's changed? What still feels the same as it did in 2013, 2014? I think the the change in some ways gets overstated, especially if you're like a 42-year-old woman. <laughs> I still want the same stuff that I wanted before. I still want to watch Killing Eve in bed and... Um, <laughs> Family has stayed the same, if, if not gotten closer. Um, 
if anything, I, I think what has happened is that my focus has narrowed and my priorities have been very clearly pointed out for me in a way that I didn't, I didn't have before. You, as someone that is inherently very connected to your emotions and your beliefs and your values and those memories, um, are now in a structure at the top of the dance music industry where not everyone is driven by those same values. I'd like to know if you can break down how you go about transmitting what you believe in while you're working within a structure that is quite formulaic, highly business-like, and is not really attuned to the underground that you came from. If you can break down whether that's uh, picking, choosing certain gigs, imposing on promoters certain values, but making sure that Hot Mass and FYF Festival don't feel a billion years apart. Well, the first thing I, I want to do is kind of, um, I want to back up and, and, and do a thing about the mythology of old school underground culture being this kind of anti-capitalist, safe haven, safe space fantasy world, you know, that contained all of these values of X, Y, and Z. I started going to parties about 25 years ago. And the most turbo capitalists I've ever known in my life were the people who figured out how to throw parties in those first few years. And I'm sure that uh, that's true for most people who, in their own scenes, grew up in that world. The idea that there was ever a period where it wasn't about the money or that promotion wasn't a part of it and all of these things, the technology is changing and people do it differently. You know, we're not running off flyers and printing things at the copy shop and, and whatever, but we're doing those things in different ways. And so I, I think that there's a, a tendency to kind of take the low-hanging fruit and also to romanticize that period in time as if it was not totally dominated by men um, with, with very few women participating uh, certainly at the top of lineups and barely at the bottom. There is this kind of uh, impulse to say, now that we're in the future and things are very capitalist and organized and there's this business element or whatever, that was always there. It was just that we were better at concealing who was getting fucked. There was a promoter who would take home loads and loads and loads of cash. I remember people who had safes in their houses when they were teenagers, you know, with loads of tax-free cash. And that money was not being distributed to people even headlining the events, you know, you'd have these people coming over from Europe for the first time. They had no idea what they were worth. They had no one, no one looking after them. The sense of, of best practices and invoices and things like this were just not as common. And there were a lot of people that got fucked over royally. We have an economic imbalance for sure in dance music right now. And it's something that manifests in a lot of ways. And, and it certainly manifests at the intersection of race and class and gender and all of these things. Having said that, um, there are more tools to kind of rectify that now. And there are people who are learning to look after their money and demanding fairness. And so to answer your question more directly, how do I, I deal with it? Well, one thing that I do is that I treat my own financial wellness as a tool for the financial wellness of the people around me. I have lineups that are under my control, always have a balance of 
um, across race and gender and sexuality, and it's not something that we advertise, but if you go back and look at it, you know, we're trying to, what do we still believe, especially lead by example and not hit people over the head with, with this, but just show that it can be done. Pay people fairly. Uh, all of those kinds of things. You know, my, my tour manager makes a living wage. He lives in my house in Chicago. You know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, it, it's about just kind of enacting them rather than, rather than tweeting about them. I mean, I know that that's like important to, to, to discuss it, but at the end of the day, it's important to to care for yourself and make sure that the the ship is is solid, but then to put to put people on it and care for them, and and that is, that is your that is my tiny corner of it, but it's 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 what I do. I, I quite like that you've stepped into this knowing kind of rave mama bear um, persona that. I don't know how many of you saw, but there were there were flight problems going out to move. This is the kind of thing that you do, and you don't ask for publicity. Uh, Maria bought a first-class ticket for Lauren Flax, who was at risk of missing a smart bar opening party, a movement. You regularly pull up people that are messaging you saying, I would love to come see you in Chile or Brazil, but I don't have the money, and you regularly make sure they can get in. You pay either out of your own pocket or you give guest lists that would have gone to an agent's friend's friend. Um, it seems like you're using your position in small ways to enact small change to keep the, uh, the drawbridge up, now that it's up, so that people can follow behind you and through. I felt like Lauren's set in movement was going to be very important. It was her first live performance in Detroit for movement, and it was at the Smart Bar Party, which I'm, I'm, I have a nominal title still with the with the club, but, you know, she needed help getting there, and she was sitting around waiting for JetBlue to, to respond to her on Twitter, and, you know, you could sit around and watch paint dry faster than that's going to happen, and, you know, I know what it's like to live show to show and to need to need that money, and also I wanted her to have that experience and to be put in front of those people in Detroit, and she... She murdered it, and look, we are all in this together. And you know, I, I, I think, and this is something I know that you want to talk about more. But you know, I think the essential thing that we all need to kind of be moving into gear-wise is is moving out of talking the talk and more into walking the walk. Because I think I am exhausted with Twitter hot takes, and I am exhausted with the discourse. And I am not exhausted by just helping people. That makes me feel good. And it makes me feel there's a measurable thing that happens. And uh, and it's not likes or retweets or whatever. So that's something that's been on my mind a lot. And Lauren, I, I was embarrassed that she told people that, <laughs> that I did that. But, you know, I think if you can help somebody, you should. When you talk about discourse, and it's not something we need to get too bogged down in, how do you personally grapple with being a two-sided straw man? Because it feels like when you look at the position that you embody, it looks like quantum physics to me, that it's Schrodinger's Madonna, or there's a Madonna multiverse where you're both everything great and good about socially liberal politics in dance music, and then you're also everything that is commercial, and you're running around punching cops in Grand Theft Auto, and people seem to have an incredibly polar opposite approach to who you are and what you embody. And a lot of those people start in one place and end in the other, depending on whatever, I don't know. How do you convert the unbelievers or how do you show people that you're not an idea, you're not an icon, but you're you know, a real person? I don't care. 
I don't. I mean, you can't you can't sit around other people's other people's opinions of you are really truly none of your business. And the discussion has been reduced to the point of you're a feminist and yet you're in a video game that has violence in it. I mean, yeah, and I like the movie Goodfellas too. Like, I'm not. In, is this Tipper Gore? Like, are, are we to the point where we're saying that like violent video games are some kind of endorsement of a way of lifestyle, or that death metal is an endorsement of you know drinking blood and worshiping Satan? Like, like these are not literal things. Like, come on, it's. 2019, grow the fuck up. Who the fuck wouldn't want to hit a cop in GTA? It was fun as fuck. And and it doesn't doesn't say anything about my values. I mean, although I do value hitting cops, but but past that, I'm not, it's not like I'm saying, hey kids, go out and start a criminal, well, okay. But, you know, in, in my mission, you know, you're supposed to go out and start a club and run a criminal enterprise from it. And I'm not saying that. I mean, go start a club, but you know, these are not even good faith arguments that people make. Nine times out of ten, when somebody's coming to you from that position, it is not a good faith argument. It's not even what they really think. They just want to see what you're going to say. And what I'm going to say is nothing because it doesn't matter and it matters who you are, not what some guy who wants to get a reaction out of, I mean, you know, a guy with 15 followers and seven of them are bots, you know, like, you know, you cannot live in that world. You just can't. Let's take the inflection point of what's happened, of how people are reacting to you online and bring it to something more tangible, because there must have been a point when you started noticing in your direct messages on Facebook, it wasn't just hey, you're amazing, listen to my demo, or hey, fuck you, but hi, I'm trapped in Syria and I need help, or hi, I'm a queer woman of colour in Mali, you give me a lot of inspiration, but I'm really looking for an out because I'm in danger. There seems to have been an accumulation of those kind of messages that has led you onto a different path, and this might be the right time to break it down and talk about it. Yeah, so um, right around the time I I, I started a, a month long festival at Smart Ball called, called Daphne, just to give a little background, I, so I used to do the, that nasty thing that uh, everyone whispers about, but nobody really talks about openly, which was I used to ghost produce for someone. And um, a very famous guy, DJ, who you would all be very surprised to know, does not make his own records. Um, he's a real innovator, you know? And one day I noticed that he had posted on his Instagram that meme, you know, of, of the guy looking at the computer and the woman is standing behind him like this and, it, you know, looking fraught at him not paying attention to her and paying attention to whatever's on the computer. And the, the caption said, why aren't there more women producers? And then at the bottom it said, because they can't use reason or logic. And I thought, you wouldn't know how to turn on logic. <laughs> If your fucking life depended on it. I mean, this is a guy who I love still, but he used to send me two YouTube videos and a vocal and tell me to make a record that sounded like a combination of the two of them. And <laughs> because he needed, I need a record for Winter Music Conference, you know, that kind of situation. I mean, it really is that craven. Um, this is before I was producing this Black Madonna. Anyways, I was furious. I was like spitting mad. Like, 
I could not see straight. I remember that I w- my husband had a show that day. Uh, he does all this modular synthesis stuff. And I was walking around this little punk rock club with all these noise dirt bags. And I was just so fucking mad. I was like taking shots of whiskey. Was, this motherfucker, how dare he? He hasn't made his own record. And just like out of my mind angry. And I got back to work the next day and I was talking to Joe Shanahan and I was like, this motherfucker... I don't even know what to do about it. And and, and uh, Joe's daughter, Tara, who was my intern at the time, was there. And we were talking about it. And after I calmed down, I was like, you know what? We're going to do a month of women. We're going to do a month of women at Smart Bar. And we're going to talk about women's historical contributions because they're, and this is less now, but at the time there really was this sort of idea that there was always there was always an article in in every magazine that was like women in dance music on the rise, you know, and that article would come out every six months, and you would find one from like 1995. It's like women in dance music on the rise, DJ rap, next big thing, you know, and so the, it was this constant this constant narrative of of the ingenue, and that we were we were always always getting ready to break, always getting ready to break, but we never did. And, um, or we did for a time and then they had to have kids and go away or whatever it is that we do with women when they expire. It's like bad milk. So we did this, this festival and when that happened, a lot of press came out and I started to, much to my surprise, start to get a lot of messages from like people who were nowhere near us. There was a Syrian refugee girl who wanted to learn to produce and so... All of us um, that were teaching at Daphne got together and gathered our free software um, and delivered to her with uh, with guides for how to use it and so on and so forth. And I started to get more and more and more of those kinds of things. And one of the great things about this job is that you travel a lot and the world gets a lot bigger, but then you realize that dance music really is global. And that extends far past the boundaries of Europe and America, and there are people doing incredible things everywhere. And I started to encounter people and going to places, even that were, you know, areas in conflict. <laughs> and that's when my life really started to change from sort of talking in an anecdotal or theoretical way about what I believed and trying to instead translate it into uh, real, solid humanitarian work. So like advocacy becoming less of an abstract and more I'm going to log off and go and actually talk to someone or help someone or get involved with someone making uh, a path from a marginalized place where they're in danger to a place where they're safe. That's right. So my, my probably the first big trip that I took with respect to that was to Uganda. I went to Uganda to work with a women's DJ collective there in particular, a woman named DJ Rachel, who was one of the first kind of emerging women DJs in East Africa. And Rachel ran this collective. And I went um, I went with a group of people, and I met Rachel, and um, I met her partner. I think I can say this safely now, as they are in America. But at the time, it was like they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't even really talk about, she's like, this is our room, <laughs> you know? We both sleep in here because being gay is illegal in Uganda and very, very, very fucking dangerous. 
So what started off as a trip that was kind of a, like, okay, I'm going to take some MIDI controllers and exchange some ideas or whatever, went from kind of a normal exchange of ideas into like very serious stuff because we got really close really fast. Um, I'm really close with Rachel's partner and their son. And that relationship developed. Rachel came to stay with me in London. It just, it took a lot of ideas that I think were more abstract for me and turned them into, oh my God, my friends have been outed in a country where they are illegal and they could be killed. Um, Uganda has a terrible tabloid culture, and so they would take pictures of Rachel out DJing, and and it would say like DJ Rachel, one of the top 100 homos in Uganda, this kind of thing, like loads of really direct press. I think she lost a bar license because they made it out that it was solely a gay bar. That's so. right, and they and, and and accusers of like witchcraft and shit like this. And these were people that had me in their home <laughs> and that stayed in my home. Rachel stayed with me for quite a while. So I kind of got involved in her life first, but then that started to extend into other things and into, in particular, refugee work and specifically into work for queer refugees who um, are among the most endangered human beings on this planet. And... Um, something that we don't talk a lot about is when people migrate, why is it that they, they migrate? And one of the top reasons that people migrate is because of violence against sexual minorities. The services that are out there are not even really tailored for them. They're tailored for, you know, families, like traditional nuclear heteronormative families. And then you have somebody who's transgender that shows up at the border of wherever and the service that they need doesn't even exist. And it just really touched my heart because I knew the challenges that, that Rachel was about to face and that she is, that she is facing right now. Um, and, and so I, I got very serious and very involved. How do you actually manifest that involvement with a tour schedule and recording an album that is dizzying? How do you actually, day-to-day, week-to-week, divide up time speak with people, have face-to-face meetings, or simply log off and go and do something outside of music. I, I can't really understand how it slots into your, your routine. Well, uh, the first thing I did was I just kind of looked around and saw what, I, what what could I do. And number one, uh, all of my merch, 100% of the proceeds, go to um, an organization called Help Refugees, which is the second largest refugee organization in this part of the world. And they're really amazing. They don't have a, a high administrative cost, so it's not like donating to the Red Cross or something where your money is kind of going into a hole and you don't really understand. The Help Refugees people are amazing. They're very available. So I started to work with them, and then this year I became an official ambassador for them, and we're extending that. We just did a special run of shirts for them um, for Pride, which is, are going to be available and out and about It's kind of starting now. In specific, I am trying to aid a, a subsection in their organization called Say It Loud, which was started by a Ugandan gentleman named Aloysius, who was one of the early people to successfully gain asylum in, in the United Kingdom for being gay. And Aloysius is incredible. He's very brave. Rather than just coming in and starting his life, which he could have done, 
he decided to stay on and advocate for other people who were sexual minorities who needed to migrate as well. So they started with what they had. And I mean, it was like, you know, meeting around a coffee table. They didn't have much. Um, and then help refugees came in and started to give assistance. And now they have this weekly meeting, which is really huge, and they give legal assistance to people who are, are trying to claim asylum. One of the biggest problems for people who are coming into the country is that many times the home office will deny a claim on its face. They just kind of dismiss it. It's like, okay, next. Um, and then you can you can appeal. But what they're really looking for is to see that there's a community around those people who would come and rally with them. So on that appeal, all of these people from Say It Loud show up. And so they'll be there in the meeting hall or wherever it is that it happens. And you have all of these other refugees who have been through the experience. And at the last meeting that I was at, they had already successfully won eight cases for eight families, which is an extraordinary number of lives to save. I think it really does kind of come down to that for me. And I certainly am, I have an enormous mouth and <laughs> I, I know that I am completely insufferable, but in many ways, but there's nothing that makes you feel the way that being involved in saving someone from a really, really, really bad fate. <laughs> you know, when you can legitimately work or work with an organization that in a very concrete way saves the lives of real people who you can hug and touch, it is the best feeling in the world and it's something that we can all do this. I'm an English major from Kentucky. I don't have any special skill set other than that I love some people who were really afraid for their lives and decided to figure out how to get into that. <laughs> it's so easy to do. And so I, I would I would encourage I would encourage even if you just take a small part because I'm a really busy person and I, I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground most of the time because I'm so tired. But every person can find a way to to be a part of whatever the thing is that moves you. And, and if it does move you, then you'll find the time. You know, if, if, when, it, when you can take a thing and move it from the abstract and into the concrete, then you'll behave differently too. You know, when it became about my friends, I was never able to think about that issue in the same way. And the idea that people talk about refugees as if they're invading or that they're not supposed to be here or that they're, or that they're well, there's loaded language. That there's all kinds of flock, or like it's, right, it, it's like, as if it's an irritation. As if it's an irritation, or a, to talk about them as if they were a flock of starlings that had overrun a tree, <laughs> really is horrific to me. You know, most refugees are kids, first and foremost. Most refugees are just children. And they are refugees because of, largely because of things that we have done in the West <laughs> that have caused geopolitical shifts or climate problems or these things don't happen in a vacuum. And, and we are our brothers and sisters keepers, whether, whether we would like to be or not. And this problem is not going to get smaller. It's going to get larger, especially with climate change. There will be a lot of climate 
refugees soon. That's increasing more and more every day. So, you know, there's a lot of room to help and a, a lot of room to get involved. Without wanting to sound, you know, childish or naive, we're talking about some serious issues that are innately human and have roots in politics and social movement and, and you know, historical factors of uh, country borders being divided up by two people in a room and all these kind of big, big topics that dominate life. You go and you play records to people and you make people happy. How are you personally grappling with seeing the face-to-face -face of people torn apart from their families, people tortured for their sexuality? How can you approach playing four or five raves in a week and go in with the same kind of energy and happiness and vigor as you once did when you were having a, a higher intake of alcohol and extracurriculars and when you were a younger raver. Is it hard for you to reconcile the important things that you're doing now as you know, an activist, an advocate for refugees with the day-to-day -day of playing fun music? Is there like a, a, a disjunct? You know, I... Uh... I, I think that um, really there are sort of com components to one another. On one hand, there's the part of my brain that wants to be a problem solver and engage these things, and 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 you do see awful stuff. Like when I went to, I went to Palestine last February and um, visited uh, refugee camps there. We had to sneak in. It was really um, there's a reason they don't want you to go over there. <laughs> You know, I stayed right at the wall um, in this project that we did with the the Waldorf Hotel, uh, which is the the art hotel that Banksy created in Bethlehem. I mean, there were really profound things that happened there, you know, and, and that I saw. And then on the other hand, some of the most beautiful musical experiences that I've ever had happened there as well. You know, there were moments because it was an artist's retreat. I was there with Roisin, with Roisin Murphy and a guy named Fred Gibson who works with Brian Eno and we were with a lot of other Palestinian artists uh, who were just amazing. We were there to, to just listen and see, <laughs> just to see. And I, I think we all came from very different perspectives. But there were moments where, you know, we would go to to visit in a refugee camp during the daytime and, and, and to learn about the progress of settlements. And you would see places where people's homes had been raised. Um, I mean, children's shoes that had been blown up. Uh, things that, you know, there was a lot of psychic weight, but I, I think one thing that happens is that when you see these things, you care a lot less about how you feel about them because you know that somebody else has to actually live it. You know, there's a lot of people there who didn't get to go on the plane and go home afterwards. And so my feelings, I definitely kind of, certainly there's a, a weight to carry there, but, you know, you feel more like, you know, for the people who can't, who are, you know, in an open-air prison, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have any emotional reference point for that. And then at the same time, the, uh, at night, we would just start making music almost like organically. And some of the most beautiful things that happened ever musically for me in my whole life started with somebody, we were learning about these tonal scales that are unique to the region. And so someone would start playing one of them and then everybody else would make a kick drum on the table with their hands. And someone else would start singing and then Fred would start grabbing sections of it and all totally unplanned and 
you know, the music was such a relief for that. And so I, I see those things as related. I mean, you cannot lose your joy. If people who live in Palestine are keeping their joy through music, then the rest of us have no excuse. It's an important spiritual component in in life, and it certainly is the complement to they're the, the the twin poles that 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 I care about. They are different, but they are you know connected. You more than most uh, a connective tissue between those issues and people who want release in a club. I can't think of uh, a DJ that has quite so much emphasis on slogans and the power of positivity and community. And I'd like to know how you make that scalable to people that are blithely unaware of the issues, not because they don't care, but because they haven't heard of it. How a person tonight at AVA who's hanging by the back of the bar or a guy's mate that didn't want to come to the Chemical Brothers but came along, how they can see you DJing or see another artist performing or see the diverse talent that you've put on a bill in Walthamstow and get that understanding that love is the message, that there's a reason to still believe. How can you make that scalable to everyone in the room? I, I, I don't think you can. I, 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 think, I, I think, again, like we're talking about these things that are built into what I'm trying to do in an explicit way, but at the end of the day, the, the sleight of hand should be that you, you don't know that you're, you know, you're not getting hit over the head with the message. That, it, that, that you come and you see a kind of world that's been built and you see it as a, as a, as a potential, but not, that, not necessarily that, that there's a kind of instructive bit to it. If you come in and you're just a punter and you're drunk and whatever and you just want to go jack all night and not think about anything, you can 100% do that because Arister is playing and she's amazing and you will not care about anything other than what she plays. And if you're one of those people that says, I just want it to be all about the music, well, then you, you, will, have, you will have it as you wish. No one is um, making people sign the um, Techno Radicals clipboard. <laughs> you know, you can come and get trashed and do your thing as as well and and by all means we encourage you to but uh as much as anything i'm trying to build the world that i want to live in and 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 not not command it then i'd ask one final question before i give it over to the audience because that was talking about the broad morass of people that are there to dance or there to drink, but everyone who's turned up to this talk, and I'm sure people who'll be listening in six months, nine months, two years in the future to this SoundCloud podcast are people that are more actively engaged with discourse to circle background. But uh, are they the focused discourse. on the wrong discourse? <laughs> Shiver. Do you think, I mean, I think I've got a sense of what your answer is going to be. Do you think the things that we, within dance music, at the intelligentsia commentariat side, focus on is at the exclusion of taking a moment to get offline and think, shit, there's some kids in Bangalore that could be amazing if they had the right apparatus, or wait, there are some people that are outside this bubble. What can we, who are often the villains of circling wagons around the same issue, do to take a moment and actually think about important things that you've come to the conclusion on? I think there's a lot of people who are on Twitter with their hot takes, like they're trying to get the high score on Pac-Man. And I am completely exhausted by them. I, I really, I mean, it's, I hear something, like there's this sort of, it's like, uh, like you take a certain set of words from some particular class about gender, 
101 in in college and you just put them in a box and shake them up and then throw them back out at Twitter and the, the more of them the better and I start to I get like 36 characters and I'm like you know like I am so fully exhausted by that thing and there are people whose whole shtick their whole thing is just to do that and they really don't do anything else and it really is completely fucking exhausting to me. I think that that's all fine and good. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. That's all fine and good, but I am so much less interested in who's canceled and so on and so forth. I I would love to see people start to take more responsibility for actual actions and less kind of performative performative discourse the discourse trademark i would i would like to see less of that and more more actual stuff because it's not hard to help it's not anyone can do it anyone can do a small part anyone can do a big part and there are of course many many people who are doing these things and there are many people who are doing these things just by living <laughs> you know people who are just being alive and living through whatever pile of shit they had put on them just because of who they are but in in general i you know i think you know let's all take it easy on each other and try to find the space where we can do the most good in in the most concrete way a little less theory a little more practice that would be a good message and to chronically online people is to log off take a breather and speak to your fellow man but it's an important one Oh yeah, I mean, you, you know, this idea that everyone is required to make a press release every time something happens, rather than, rather than actually take action steps in their life to to, to change a thing, um, it's just, um, it's pretty exhausting. I actually do have another few. Um, on that note, I'd love to know if you've actually met any riot girls in person. If you've, uh, oh, I was in Riot Girl Kentucky. I was in, I was in the, I was in Riot Girl Kentucky chapter. I know. Have you, have you cashed in your, your contemporary fame chips to go and have a meeting with Kathleen Hanna? Oh no, I don't. I would, I would, I, I would go completely. I, I, if I saw Kathleen Hanna, I would completely fucking lose cabin pressure. I, it would be over. Like, what would you even do? I mean, she's... I mean, she's the coolest. I mean, music is littered with people like yourself and Kathleen Hanna and the B-52s and people that weren't necessarily cool by the proxy of cool of that day and then punched their way into being incredibly cool and inspirational. I mean, I know people who know her, but I'm just saying, like, if I ever met her, I still wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't be able to look her in the eye and be like... Be like, me. yo, Kathleen, what's up? You're a feminist. I'm a feminist. No, as in like Rebel girl, am I right? <laughs> you wouldn't be able to have the, the fangirl moment that you dreamt of when you were younger? I would probably just start crying. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what it was like to be 15 in Kentucky. You got my first bikini girl That would be it. I would just be completely... Kind of need to make this happen to see this work. Now. <laughs> yeah, and snot coming out of my nose. That's what would happen. Does anyone have another question? Then I do have one more as a final thing. Of something I want to know. Obviously, as being a friend and a fan for years, 
when you actually go out and play records, are you structuring your music to reflect the world that you want to live in? You book tours where you have Eris Drew and Kay Hand and Wes Baggerly play. Are you going out and playing music from like, across the around, around the, the panorama? Do the, do the records music? reflect what yeah. I... Oh, no. No, okay, interesting. <sighs> no, I'll play like Beat That Bitch With A Bat, like anything like that. I play a lot of real filthy rap that I totally don't co-sign, but I like it anyways. I, for me, I, I mean, in a moment, I mean, when you have that kind of like great ecstatic moment and maybe you play, you know, there but for the grace of God, go I or whatever. Like, certainly there are moments, but there are also just moments where I just want to play like, you know, ass and titties or whatever. I don't know. I'm, wicked. <laughs> I'm a complicated woman. <laughs> Uh, I hope you all look forward to an all ghetto tech set headlining tonight. Please give the Black Madonna a big disco clap. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.